You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. I'm sorry to say that as a church here, we've run out of toilet paper. But the good news is Bunnings had plenty of sandpaper in stock. And so we've, um, <clears throat> I'm kidding, we've, Janice, we've been stockpiling for weeks, haven't we? We've got plenty of toilet paper here. <laughs> no, we haven't. I actually have no idea what the state of toilet paper is. <laughs> a friend of mine saw um, a lady in, a, in, the, in the lift in the shopping centre, her trolley overflowing with toilet paper. And he looked at her with this kind of quizzical look. He didn't say anything. He just, you know, and she looked at him and she just said, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, you know, she was honest. I thought at least she's honest, you know. I like that. Um, we're a funny bunch of people, aren't we? We are just us Aussies, us Sydney siders. We're a funny bunch of people. I'm not sure what this tells us about our society, the most precious commodity of all, toilet paper. What could happen if we run out? My goodness. It's funny, isn't it? Some strange things going on in our city. Some strange things going on in our country, in the world, right? Strange things happening. It's had people, it's got people thinking some pretty serious thoughts, asking some pretty serious questions. Some really serious ones like, is this it? Is this how the end of the world comes about? Is this what we're looking at? Is this end times? Is this how the world ends? Are we thinking about, excuse me, are we looking at end times at the moment? Is this it? Is this it? I had to get up there. I had to get up there. (laughs) So silly. But is this, I mean, is this what we're talking about, right? Coronavirus, it's not a laughing matter, is it? Locust plagues around the world. Tornadoes near our hometown in the States. It's pretty full on over in Nashville. Severe drought bushfires, climate change. We know it so well in this country. Isolationist politics. The left and right feels like couldn't be further from each other. How are we ever going to dialogue? Are we getting towards the end? You know, research has shown for the first time in living memory, younger generations believe that they're not going to have it better than their parents. The younger generations among us, for the first time in a long time, are thinking, man, we're going to have it worse off, not better off, than our parents. Collectively, there's just this feeling that things are getting worse. The world's going to the dogs. A growing cynicism about the state of our world. Maybe you're feeling that. How do we as Christians at the church respond to this? Deal with these questions, with these current issues. What are we to do? What do we think about this? I find it just fascinating as I was reading through our passage allotted to us for this week as we go through our series in Mark of what God has for us this morning. If you were listening to the reading uh, just now, read so well by Tony, you might have noticed we're talking about this stuff today. We're talking about the end, the end of all things. In our series uh, in Mark called Journey with Jesus, this is what we're looking at. How are followers of Jesus supposed to think about the end of all things? Now, our passage for today is taken from a larger section beginning um, at chapter 13. And it begins with Jesus and the disciples hanging out in Jerusalem. They're at the temple complex, enormous 
building, one of the biggest in the known world back then. And the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, what magnificent buildings. Aren't they amazing? This temple, this city, it's magnificent. Jesus then says, I tell you what, this temple, this city, it's not going to last for long. It's actually going to be destroyed. And the disciples, fair enough, fair enough ask a follow-up question. Um, Jesus, when? When's this going to happen? Is there, can you give us a sign? When's it going to happen? And then he begins to teach them about the destruction of Jerusalem. But then he uses this whole opportunity in chapter 13 to speak about the end of all things and what it's going to look like. And then you may have noticed in our reading, in the whole way through chapter 13, he says, watch, be ready, be alert, keep watch, wait for my coming back and yearn for it. Now let's acknowledge something I think pretty obvious today. Lots of people struggle with this teaching. Lots of people, Christian or not, because it just seems so intense, doesn't it? It's not something you probably think about or or talk about very often, although maybe a little bit more in our current climate. But this is just what weird Christian movies are about, right? End time stuff. It's just, isn't that fanaticism? Is this kind of fundamentalism? Are we really talking about this this morning? Isn't that what those weird churches talk about with those preachers? They're angry and they bang the pulpit. Am I in one of those churches? Yes, you are. No, you're not. Well, you can tell me afterwards what you think. So doesn't this lead to fanaticism or is this kind of fanatical thinking? I mean, really? Another thing I think people ask around this topic is, do I have to believe this as a Christian? Or, okay, if I do, what's the difference? What difference does it really make to my now, to my tomorrow step? Right? to my every day. What difference does this make to my life? It just feels so, you know, that, so sandwich board guy, crazy guy, handing out pamphlets about the end of the world. Feels like that. Us sophisticated people on the lower North Shore, do we really believe this and talk about it? I think another question in dealing with this topic is, all right, if I take Jesus seriously, how do I do it then? I mean, what does it really mean? He says, watch, be alert, be on guard. Yearn for my return. How do we do that? So that's our three questions for this morning, okay? Isn't this just fanaticism? Kind of, do I really have to believe this? Next question, all right, if I've got to, what difference does it really make to my life? And the third one, well, how do I do it then? How do I do what Jesus asked me to do? How do I yearn for it? How do I watch? How do I be alert? So let's kick off with our first question for this morning. Isn't it just kind of fanaticism. Do we really believe this today in our modern, sophisticated world? Isn't it a little far-fetched? Well, let's check out the first couple of verses from our passage today, verses 24 and 25. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Jesus here is describing the end of the world, what Christians call the second coming of of Christ. And it sounds pretty out there, doesn't it? Sounds pretty out there. Now, we don't have any trouble with the story of Jesus' first coming, do we? It's nice. It's like a nice bedtime story, right? It's lovely. I mean, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what we have. Instead of stars sort of falling from the sky, there's a star in the sky, right? And we've got a baby in a manger. Oh, no crying he makes, as if young parents are going, yeah, right. The Bible doesn't say no crying he makes, that's a hymn. They have no idea. They obviously didn't have children when they wrote that. 
But there's a baby in a manger the first time Christ comes. Second time he comes, it's with power and glory. Everything's shaking as well in verse 21, at the end of all things, in Jesus Christ's second coming. The foundations of the world are being shaken. It just seems so intense, not much of a bedtime story. Is it just too supernatural, too apocalyptic? It's just what bizarre movies are made about, mostly starring Nick Cage. Is that true? Well, what do we do with this teaching? You know, people have tried to do lots of things. People have tried to explain it away. They've said Jesus was a great teacher, really good teacher, but you know what? He, was, he got carried away in this section. People say that. He got carried away. He was a product of his time. He didn't really know what he was kind of talking about. He didn't know what we know now. Chronological snobbery, people call it. And they take verse 30 as proof. See, Jesus said this would all happen in your lifetime. Check it out, verse 30. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. See, Jesus said the end of all things is going to happen before the people in his immediate hearing were going to die. See, not really going to happen. What do we do with this? Well, verse 30, Jesus is actually here answering the question from the disciples earlier on. Remember, he said to them, temple's going to fall, Jerusalem's going to fall. The disciples ask, um, Jesus, when's this going to happen? And then classic Jesus doesn't give them a very you know, uh, easy, immediate answer. He, tells, he takes an opportunity to teach about the whole of the end times. Then he comes back to their original question in verse 30 and says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So Jesus wasn't confused in his thinking, thinking the end of all things would happen in the lifetime of the disciples. Okay, all right, I might concede that. But maybe he meant the end of all things in a spiritual way, maybe like a symbolic way. Not in a real literal sense, but maybe my teaching will come back to you or something like that. Maybe. Let's have a look at verse 26. At that time, people will see my emphasis added, see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You will see. This is a historical, physical reality. We will see with our eyes. Not just a spiritual one, but a physical one as well. What we've got to grapple with, the second coming of Christ, it's not a random, obscure thing mentioned once or twice in the Bible. It's mentioned in the New Testament over 300 times. So it's not just for people who like to talk about end time things and get carried away with some of that stuff. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ, it's an integral part of what we believe. Hmm. Okay, then. So there's no way around it. But you might be thinking, if we really embrace this, that this stuff is going to happen at any moment, wouldn't that just lead to Christians being pretty useless in the world? I mean, would we just be sitting here waiting for Jesus to snatch us away? Wouldn't we be no good for the world then? It'll lead to just a, a disengagement in the world. Is that true? Well, that leads us to our next question of, what difference is this, does this really make in my life? The second coming of Christ, what difference does it make to my life? Well, I think all the difference. Let's have a look at three. Let's look at three ways. The first one, it radically affects our social engagement. That is social justice, how we deal with difficult issues in our world. How so? Let me say this and then I'm going to explain it. Ready? Because Jesus is coming back, he and will renew all things and make everything right, it does mean that we know how the story ends. Okay, Christians, we know how the story ends, and it's a good ending for the better. So because that's going to happen, 
we can then work towards that reality happening with confidence. Let me explain. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. It's going to be a long sermon. No, I'm kidding. We're going all the way back to Genesis 1 really briefly. Remember, Eden was paradise. Why? Why was Eden paradise? Because of God's presence. That's the reason it was so good. And that's what we are longing for at the end of all things. Eden was paradise because of God's presence. Nothing dead could exist, right? Nothing dead, diseased, or broken can exist in his presence. But sin entered the world, and God withdrew his presence. And the earth became like the dark side of the moon, not seeing the light of the sun. It became a place of poverty, injustice, violence, oppression. We know this to be true for our world now. It's because God's presence was taken away. Now, through the Bible, God's presence reappears in the tabernacle, in the temple, and of course, in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he is bringing the presence of God to renew all things, including the earth. Now, what does that mean? No more pain, poverty, injustice, or violence, or oppression, because nothing evil can exist in his presence. When Jesus returns, it will be the complete undoing of the curse. Now, you still might be thinking, yeah, okay, so what? How does that change how you and I live today? How does it change how we approach social issues and concerns? Oh, a lot. Because anyone who yearns for the second coming of Christ will work towards the eventual reality of all things. Even though there's great darkness in the world, we know a light is coming. So we work to push back the darkness in preparation for that great light to arrive when everything will be put right. right? This is part of what it means, I think, to watch, to be alert, not to be spiritually sleepy, to work at putting right what Jesus will ultimately put right. Now, let me ask you this. What kind of people do you think then yearn for his return? What kind of people yearn for his return? You see, his return is good news for people whose life is full of bad news. Is that right? I think it's pretty obvious that people long for another life when this one has left them far from satisfied. Yeah? So whether you're a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt, a slave in Southern America 200 years ago, or you've been sold into sex slavery in the year 2020, whether you're a refugee family left with nothing after your home has been blown up by war, a family who's mourning the loss of a parent or a child or a loved one because of injustice, or a family who just doesn't know how to survive, how they're going to survive the rest of the week because of poor health care and lack of food. Truth is, these people I've just described, they don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Christ. Right? You're not apathetic when someone tells you the God of the universe will one day wipe out hunger, violence, injustice. If you're one of those people, do you think you'd be apathetic towards those things? <laughs> you would yearn for his return. Someone who's going to put right everything? No more evil, violence, oppression, injustice? Who would not long for that day? Well, what does it mean if we don't? Let's be honest with ourselves. Tell you what, <laughs> been cutting me this week. What does it mean if we're not yearning for his return? If our own life is too comfortable to long for this, 
What does that mean? I don't want to guilt trip us this morning, but I think this is what it means. I think we must look across the world to those who are yearning. You see, the world needs Christians who are not overcome by the darkness of the world, because it can be that like that. The world needs people who are not overcome with the darkness of the world, who aren't overly cynical. Ah, oh, things are never going to get better. They're just going to get worse. Well, Christians, we've got the resources to deal with that. Why? Because we know the end of the story. How does it end? It ends with Christ returning and putting right all things so we can have the resources, the power, the energy to work towards defeating those things for his glory. Amen. God will put everything right, and this drives us to seek the good of others for the glory of God. I think this is the antidote to our spiritual sloth and our self-absorption. Okay. How else does this affect our lives? What difference does the second coming of Jesus make to my life? Or it changes how we think about social justice. Oh, yeah. It also changes how we think about personal integrity, character, our decisions. How so? Well, we know two things for sure about Jesus' return. We don't know a lot. We know two things. What are they? It's going to happen, and we don't know when it's going to happen. So now you know if anyone ever says, this is when it's going to happen, you know they're full of it, right? I mean, it was interesting, the movie 2012 was on, on last night. And I love that movie. I love disaster movies. Just I love the effects. And, but we know if someone says this is when it's going to happen, you know exactly that it's definitely not going to happen then. We know Christ is coming back, and we don't know when it is. Jesus says it, right? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. But only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Even the earthly Christ did not know. Get your head around that. So because no one knows when it is, we must be alert. And I think this really affects our decisions and our personal integrity. C.S. Lewis, in talking about this particular issue, you know it's not a a me sermon without some sort of alluding to C.S. Lewis. In talking about this particular issue, he gave the illustration of an 80-year-old man. Not every thought an 80-year-old man should, has should be, I might die tomorrow. Now, that's morbid, isn't it? He's still got a life to live. You don't know how long, but he's still got a life to live. So not every thought he has should be, I might die tomorrow. But on the other hand, if he's never had the thought, I might die tomorrow, would that be good? I mean, in some ways, that would be irresponsible. You'd want to have your affairs in order. You want to have a will and that kind of thing. Not every thought, I might die tomorrow, but not never the thought, I might die tomorrow. We need a balance. Now, what does that mean for us? I think it means this. The decisions we make, do we ever consider them in the light of eternity and the second coming of Christ? I think, this is a bit harsh to say, but I think many of us are practical atheists in this way. Do we consider the second coming of Christ in any decision we make? The very least the second coming of Christ does is remind us that this is not all there is and there will be an end and it can come at any moment. Would I be proud of the decision I just made and the state of my character right now if this is true? Sometimes I, uh, I go shopping with my wife to the mall to buy new clothes. You can go ahead and hold your applause to the end of the story there. Um, my wife uh, often says in the change room when she's changing clothes, it's really hard to, to know what it looks like, like really looks like. 
because of the artificial lights of the department store. They're not great, are they? They're fluoros and they're a bit yuck. And she's like, it's hard to know what it looks like. What you really want to know is what it looks like in the light of the sun because that's how everyone's going to see you. That's the light that really matters. We must train ourselves to ask, how will this look when the irresistible light of Christ comes in all its glory? How will it look? How are we preparing our character? How are we making decisions that look right in the light of the true light that is coming, not the artificial light of this world? Okay, how else does the second coming affect how we live? Social justice, personal integrity, our decisions. Thirdly, personal justice. What do I mean by that? I mean the real issue of forgiveness, bitterness. How does the second coming of Christ deal with that? Oh, it sure does. You know, whenever someone wrongs me, you know what I automatically do? I run to the judgment seat, the judgment throne of the world and sit on it. And I pass judgment on them. Anyone else do that? I reckon I wouldn't be alone in doing that. Anyone wrongs me, I, sit, I, I, I know what they've done wrong, right? I sit in the judgment seat and I know and I want to pronounce judgment. Because we kind of sense that seat might be empty, Right? And we get concerned, maybe no one's going to deal with this. I'd better do it. I'd better do something about that. It's almost automatic if we don't stop ourselves because we think we know what they deserve. We intrinsically know. I know what they should get. And let's face it, sometimes we want to help those people get what they deserve, right? But we are not meant to be on that throne. It is not made for us. It is too big for us. It's not our place. Now, what could possibly stop us? It's almost automatic that we do it, right? I mean, let's just be honest with us. It's almost automatic that we do it. It would have to be something pretty powerful to stop me running there. What could possibly stop me? And I think the second coming of Christ is powerful enough. How? A few ways. Firstly, only Christ deserves to sit on that throne because he's perfect and you and I are not. Because truth is, there's probably others out there who would want to like make sure that we got what we deserved, right? Only God is perfect. Only God is impartial. I think, secondly, only Christ has all the knowledge to do the job really well. Let's be honest with ourselves. When someone wrongs us, we feel bitterness. Sometimes that's all we can see. All we can see is bad for that person, right? We are just blinded. We, we don't want to even ever think that there could be good in that person. We just write that person off in our minds often. Only God has complete knowledge of that person, knows what's in their history, knows the motives of their heart, knows all about them. How would we feel someone judging us with all they could see was bad? Not great. Only God knows all that's in a person, so only he can judge fairly. I think lastly, only God has the power to give people what they deserve. We might think we're perfect. We might think we know all. But as if we have the power to enact any of it, to dole out judgment on people, only Christ can do it. You see, the second coming of Christ teaches us one day he's going to come back. He's going to put everything right. He will, you won't. He will, I won't. God says, I relieve you from the burden of judging the world. I've heard from lots of parents um, that eldest children are notorious for trying to be parents. 
you might have that experience. And this kind of the hard thing is they begin to sound like you, which is really kind of can be, oh my gosh, I say that. And we've noticed that with our eldest, he's a wonderful boy. He loves his brother and sister. He's a great son and a great, a great sibling. But I think this is intrinsic in eldest kids. You know, we're trying to discipline the young kids and he pipes in, yeah, do what they say, yeah. And it probably deflects attention from him, right? That's what they do. And I found myself never yelling, uh, just lovingly saying, son, I relieve you from the burden of parenting your brother and sister. I actually have said that (laughs) to him. He's like, relieved for the burden. What are you talking about? Just do as you're told. I relieve you from the burden of parenting your siblings. It's not your responsibility. It's your mother's and mine. It's not on you. God says, I relieve you from the burden of judging others. You leave that to me. And this is just so freeing. See how this makes all the difference to us? Why? Because you can say, God, you're God, I'm not. You're the judge, I'm not. I can make peace because I know you're going to bring true peace one day. So I can be the bigger one. I can seek forgiveness. I can seek peace. I don't need to judge because I know someone is going to judge. But we've got a problem. Some of you might be sensing it already. We've got a problem. We want it and we don't want it. We want the second coming of Jesus to put all things right, to wipe away all evil, to judge, to do away with injustice because the blood of the martyrs cries out from the ground. Oh, we want someone to do something with that. But we also don't want it. Because if there's a judgment day, what hope is there for you and me? Be real. It's easy to long for judgment for them, for him, for her, that person in my oh yeah, how much do they get theirs? There's no hope for the world if there's no judgment, but what hope is there for you and me if there is? Psalm 130, verse 3 says this if you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? That's a revealing verse, that one, isn't it? Who could stand? Who could ever stand with confidence before God? When everything is revealed, what a scary thought. You know, when I was a young kid growing up in church, they used to do these kids' talks at church, and we do them here at Harborside sometimes, and the minister, he was doing one of them. I was pretty young, and um, he brought out this TV. Like back then, it was a big box TV and this enormous trolley. Right, he brought this TV out like this with a VCR right underneath. You know what I'm talking about? Some people do. And uh, he, he built this contraption of sort of wires coming out of the TV into a hat. And he brought a chair out and he said, oh, can I have some volunteers to sit on the chair? And one of my friends put his hand up. It was quicker than me. And he got up and he, and he put him on the seat. And he put this hat on his head with this wires leading into the TV. And then uh, the minister said, this is a special machine that can read minds. Let's see what's in this young boy's mind. And he turned the TV on. And it had this recording, right, from the VHS of, like, a few guys robbing a bank and then, like, some guys graffitiing a bridge, that kind of thing. And everyone was just laughing and laughing except me. I thought this was real. (laughs) I was... I was just, I mean, I was only 16 at the time. I mean, I just, 
No, I was young. I was young. I was definitely 15. I, I was young. I, I, was, I thought this was real. And I was petrified that I would have to get up next. <laughs> I just, I thought, whoa, man, what is going to show on the screen for me? I just couldn't uh, imagine all my thoughts on display for all to see. I couldn't handle it. I think I even just sort of hid under the pew. Now, of course, my old minister's machine was a hoax. Everyone knew that except me. But he was trying to make a point that even though we can hide our wrongdoing from others, we can't hide it from God. The Bible says one day everything will be revealed. And truth is, on the lower north shore here in Mossman, we are so good at hiding things. We're professionals. Masks, put the face on, so good at it. Other people don't have that issue. We've got that. And we can even pretend to ourselves. Now, I think that my old minister was right. Now, I'm not sure I, I kind of agree with the way he went about it. I was sort of, you know, scared for a couple of years after that. But it's true, right? If the Lord kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If all things were exposed, how would we come out? We've got a problem. We want judgment day. But how could we possibly long for it? Jesus says, yearn for it. How could we do it? This leads us to our last question, and this is by far our shortest. We're almost done here. How could we yearn for the coming of Christ? What do we do? Well, we read in verse 24 of our reading this morning, remember, that the sun is darkened. Remember that? In Mark 15, a few chapters ahead, we read that darkness came over the whole land. In verse 24, we read the earth will shake. The very foundations of the earth will shake. In Matthew 27, we see that the earth was shaken. The earth quaked and the rocks split. Now, what am I talking about? When was this? Of course, it was the crucifixion, the cross of Christ. It almost looks like judgment day, doesn't it? The earth is shaking. The sun was darkened. And it was judgment day, just not for you or me. It's the judgment day when judgment came down on Christ. This is the solution to our problem. We long for a judgment day, but who could stand with any confidence? This is the way. The only way we can hope and yearn for the reality of our future. Because on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, so we would not be. He was judged so we could be declared innocent. People think God is unfair. Are you kidding? Is this not the fairest judge in the whole world? The great judge of the universe was willing to be judged for us. It's madness. See, we could never stand on our own, but because our judge was willing to take the judgment for us, we can now be accepted through faith, by grace through faith in Christ. If we do this, we will stand with him gloriously complete. And then we can truly long for his return. Let's pray. Father God, we want to long for your return. You tell us to, to be alert, to keep watch. We don't know when it's going to be, but we know that you will come. We don't need to fear because you will come back and make all things new. You will take away all pain. 
all injustice, all oppression will cease. And we long for that day. We long for it because now we can stand before you because of what Christ has done. Lord, if there's anyone here who is fearful of your return because they do not have faith in you, Lord, help them to take that step of faith toward you today, right at this moment. We do not need to fear because you've shown us the perfect love that drives out fear on the cross. You've shown it to us. You took the judgment we deserve. Father, may that move us to change the way we make decisions, the way we love others, the way we give money, everything we do. May we look at it in the light of eternity. And Lord God, we pray that you would come soon and put all things right in Jesus' name. Amen.